Welcome, fellow survivors, to another episode of a Rail Tour of Post-Apocalyptic England. I'm your host and amateur ex-scholologist, Richard Oliver. Last week, well, last week all got a bit hectic, didn't it? It started with me joining an Vesca's team of cultural treasure seekers, and then discovering a new creature that could manipulate the unconscious mind's defence mechanisms to stay hidden. And then I saw just sort of getting on with our work, really. The creatures continue to prey on the crew and passengers, and really it's about time someone did something about that. But I'm just too busy, and it doesn't really fall into my job description. Anyway, for once we haven't travelled to another location, but a lot has still happened. As I said, a lot of the crew and passengers have been getting on with stuff, and while for some that is dull, if necessary, work, some of the people on board have rather more intriguing work. We have physicists, psychologists, and meteorologists, as well as monster hunters, psychics, and demolitions experts. When these people get to work, well, things can get out of hand. There are two reasons we have so many scientists on board. The first is electricity. We have an uninterrupted, almost limitless supply. And the second is, technically, there are no laws here. Scientists are free to work without regulations or supervision. Those of you who are already suspicious of scientists might assume this would lead to terrible crimes against God and man. But really, scientists are more aware of these problems than anyone else. It has long been an unwritten rule that all scientists working on the cutting edge of artificial intelligence, time travel, teleportation, and similar technologies are very familiar with the great sci-fi canon. This has probably helped mankind sidestep a whole raft of disasters, proof, if proof be needed, of the importance of good science fiction. The crew of the train have been very busy as well, working on maintaining and improving the train. The nuclear reactor has had a safety inspection, the first one ever, so I'm told, and a lot of the train systems have had similar treatment. This has been one of the reasons we haven't moved on, as most of these inspections and diagnostics required the reactor to be on minimal power. So in this period of maintenance and experiment, I thought I would take the opportunity to talk about the train itself and some of its arguably less glamorous functions, areas and staff. Okay, so there are two departments that I haven't really talked about at all. Administration and janitorial. I normally talk about the soldiers, the adventurers, the scientists, but really it is these two departments that keep the train running. The administrative staff are almost exclusively employees of, or former employees of, the Central Government Authority. The CGA has a lot of problems, but undeniably it has a wealth of capable and hard-working bureaucrats. The CGA astutely reasoned that a functioning bureaucracy is one of the most important, but less obvious traits of an effective government. People will often rail against bureaucrats, but I've been in places where they don't have a working civil service, and the difference is obvious. There are three carriages devoted purely to office space for the administrative staff, and then a number of other carriages that they oversee. They run just about everything on the train, from superhuman resources to the booting system for the squash court. The administrative carriages are a hive of activity every minute of the day and yet remain a beacon of steady order. Like everyone else on board, they answer to the captain, but the administrative team is run by administrative coordinator Francois Laura. Francois is a quiet, pleasant and extremely diligent individual who brings an almost supernatural gift to organisation. Utterly unflappable, with a seemingly never-ending supply of contingency plans, Alora is an indispensable asset to the smooth running of the train. 
when the dreaded Red Blind Plague incapacitated 80% of the crew and passengers, it was Alora who managed to maintain essential systems, and kept the employee sickness absence spreadsheet up to date. It was Alora who discovered that our friendly elderly archivist, Walter Stanhope, was actually time-travelling thief and scoundrel William Boothroyd, by noting the discrepancies in his employment record. And it was Alora whose rigorous health and safety inspections that prevented the great atomic apocalypse from coming to pass. And yes, there are those on board who point out that Alora only sleeps for three hours once every 20 days, has never eaten anything, and his quarters contain nothing but violent Buffy the Vampire Slayer fanfiction, bear traps and solved Rubik's Cubes, but I am willing to overlook these eccentricities. Now, janitorial. This is broken up into two sections, cleaning and maintenance, and I assure you both sections are kept extremely busy. Naturally, there is the normal cleaning and waste disposal duties that any normal place of business or train might need, but there are also more unique demands. A level of cleanliness demanded by the presence of pioneering scientific research and occasional world-ending epidemics is maintained on the train. And as any scientist will tell you, the more impressive and groundbreaking the research is, the more mess it causes. Of course, they also have to clean up after some of the more unpleasant attacks. Janitorial efficiently and discreetly disposed of over 100 zombie corpses that found their way on board back in Nice. This brings us to a rather specialised function of janitorial. If there are certain needs disposing of, they will get rid of it, and most importantly, guarantee it doesn't cling to the underside of the train before trying to eat the scientists who created it. It is not for nothing that the janitorial supply closet contains an apom. The cleaning section is headed by the fearsome Hector Kassan, a man who does not respond well to orders, but nevertheless carries out his job extremely efficiently. Hector's general approach could be summed up in preferring to make things disappear rather than cleaning. Maintenance is perhaps the busiest team on the entire train, again dealing with the more mundane jobs that would occur with any train, and then the more unusual problems, a lot of bullet holes, fires, damage done to walls caused by interdimensional portals, and so on. Maintenance is led by possibly the cleverest person I have ever met, Marvin Penner, someone who I have yet seen stumped by the daily challenges presented to him, a person who could design in his mind the most ingenious repairs and building work, and yet made them simple enough for one person to create. Some passengers have asked me if Francois Laura, Hector Cassan and Marvin Penner are part of the Central Government Authority's top-secret Special Agent Employment Programme that finds new, less dangerous work for retired Special Agents. First of all, obviously, I don't know it's top-secret, but more importantly, all three of these men are far too good at their jobs for this to be their second career, even if they all have their own oddness. Correspondence. We have been absolutely inundated with correspondence this week. The overwhelming majority has been about the creatures and people trying to warn us of the danger we are in, with people claiming that even I have fallen under the creature's influence, and that my recent industriousness is evidence of this. Let me reassure you, while much of the crew has been affected, I am fine. I've just been busy. And as I keep telling people, it's not my job to deal with dangerous monsters. 
We have a whole department who is supposed to do that, and I'm not going to get into another argument with HR about sticking to assigned job roles. Not again. I've actually had to go into the old correspondence to find any actual questions. First, we have a question from Roger on a submarine somewhere in the North Sea. As someone who also lives in a confined space with the same people, how do you cope with the lack of space, privacy and oxygen? Thank you, Roger. I know I sometimes complain about the conditions on board the train, but thankfully oxygen has never been an issue. It is true that tension can rise living and working in such close proximity. About once a week there will be a punch-up between two scientists about who had reserved the use of some piece of equipment. And I know from my own experience, I can end up being quite rude to my assistant, Young Knox, and of course our former producer, Elaine, whose firing I was at least partly responsible for. My advice, Roger, is to remember that everyone on board is having the same frustrations. Try and be patient, and don't give in to any murderous impulses. Next up, Petra in Zadar asks, What is the best way to identify shapeshifting monsters who have infiltrated your camp? Asking for a friend. Ah, this old chestnut. It's a situation we've all been in, and it's very difficult to know what to do. Due to the number of types of creatures who can change their shape, there is no definitive test I can give you, but a good standard rule is that anyone in the group advocating calm action is probably a shapeshifter. Virtually any human would panic in this situation. They would think irrationally, be prone to violent outbursts and poorly thought out plans. Look at those who are acting calmly. I would suggest though, try not to kill anyone unless you're 100% certain, as the old Oh, I thought he was a shape-shifting monster defence does not cut it with most Jews. Finally for this week, we have Hayoon, who didn't want me to disclose her location. Hayoon asks, what do you think of the so-called disaster capitalism in terms of the apocalypse, i.e. companies or individuals who have exploited the apocalypse for their own gain? Well, Hayoon, it doesn't take much insight to realise you're talking about the Wade Adler company who before the apocalypse were a small, struggling business and are now a behemoth of international corporate power. It is undeniable that their rise to such heights was only possible because of the apocalypse, not only in destroying their competitors but in creating new industries that they came to dominate, but they only responded to the needs of the consumer. And I know some people have gone so far as to accuse the Wade Adler company of manipulating the fallout of the apocalypse to suit them or even that they were involved in the apocalypse in the first place. But, once in, sorry, my producer is telling me through my headphones that I shouldn't talk about those rumours. Which is weird, as I don't have a producer, so I don't know who it is that's talking to me. Okay. Okay, I understand. Let's just agree that the Wade Adler Company made a lot of money in providing goods and services that were needed in the apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic world. Back to our story. While there are many aspects of both the administration and janitorial departments that I could explore which would be extremely interesting, due to time constraints I have to focus on a single aspect. Fortunately, not only is it the most interesting, it is also a perfect collaboration of the two departments, the possibly dangerous items locker. The name has become something of a misnomer, as it long ago graduated from a locker to a whole room. Now this might get a little confusing, but essentially it's in the train's basement. 
How can a moving vehicle have a stationary subterranean room? Well, the simplest explanation is that when you open the trapdoor to the basement, you're opening more than your average trapdoor and going much further than underneath the train. Originally, the basement held the sort of things that all basements hold. A tumble dryer, ping pong table, the remnants of a thousand abandoned hobbies and projects. But over time, the PDI locker simply took up more and more room. Access to the basement is severely restricted and only after obtaining special dispensation from the captain and the previously mentioned heads of the two departments of administration and janitorial. I have made this request previously, but on this occasion I was far more tenacious than normal and they were a lot more distracted. The basement is packed with hundreds of unusual objects, ranging from tiny machine parts to large crates that occasionally shake and rattle. To earn a spot in this basement, an object needs to be mysterious, possibly powerful, and almost certainly dangerous. Items are carefully catalogued by the administrative staff and an accurate asset register is maintained with each new acquisition. The items are brought here and packaged by janitorial staff, which can be quite a challenge as some of the items may leak acid, spontaneously catch fire or multiply when touching water. To go through even a tenth of the objects here would take hours, so I'll focus on the two sections of the basement that I find particularly interesting. First, doomsday devices. Really, most of these should be labelled as suspected doomsday devices, as none of them have ever actually been used and we don't know if any of them would work. The shelves are full of exotic weapons in seemingly dull metal boxes that hold potentially huge destructive power, as well as a number of beautifully designed items. Really, what strikes me most about perusing the labels is the lack of originality in the naming of these devices. The words ultimate, supreme and infinite come up a lot. Item 424 is a small clockwork spider made of gold, silver and brass. The pieces that make it up are tiny and precise and it looks very fragile. Written on the underside is the rather cryptic message, the world turns but it stops when this key turns. The key for this clockwork machine has sensibly enough been stored separately from the device. It was found in the underground tunnels that run under Paris, beside a dead woman dressed in the uniform of a First World War soldier. Not a replica uniform, an actual uniform from 1916 that was in surprisingly good condition. Scrawled in blood on the dimly lit tunnel was the warning, never turn the key. The really interesting thing is that it wasn't written in the woman's blood. So is this beautiful object really capable of destroying the world? We're not sure really, and everyone is a bit jumpy about poking this stuff too much, trying to work out what it does. Also, we have no idea how to deactivate or safely destroy the items, so they are simply stored in the basement. Now, after the doomsday device section, which we're fairly sure contains some very dangerous items, we come to the area that houses supernatural, spiritual and religious items, which we're pretty sure do absolutely nothing, but thought best to keep them out of harm's way just in case. This has a lot more variety than just the apocalyptic destruction the Doomsday Device section offers. There are stuff here that can summon demons, raise people from the dead, usher in an age of never-ending night, lots of variety. Even more so than the Doomsday Devices, I must admit to a fair amount of scepticism. And unlike the Doomsday Devices, there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever that any of these things work. There are also a lot of books in this section, and unsurprisingly, in an effort to make them look more terrifying, 
A lot of them are bound in human skin, but really that stops being shocking after the fifth time, and I now consider it rather cliché. These books usually claim to hold the dark secrets of the universe, but much more could be learned about the universe by simply skipping through Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time. What I do admire is the flair for the dramatic these objects and books come with. The people who made them knew a lot about marketing and product branding. Virtually all of them come with some element of human sacrifice, or at least some part of a human, as with the books bound in human skin, for example. Blood is the favourite element, presumably because there is a lot of it and nobody actually needs to die to supply it. Perusing the asset register for the basement and reading the short description written for each item, which incidentally are far too laconic for my taste, I found one item that in a Venn diagram sat alone in the intersection of scientific doomsday devices and supernatural oddities, what was known rather simply as the device of certain ends. I searched the shelves until I found a small space set aside just for it, but it wasn't there. Alternate Reality History I had planned to interview Professor Tao Pan, one of our resident historians, who has taken on the immense and ultimately impossible task of recording the history of the infinite alternate realities. But unfortunately, Professor Fan was taken and killed by the creatures this morning, and as I never want to let the death of anyone interfere with my work, I have looked over the Professor's notes and made some interesting discoveries myself. For example, alternate reality B712. The year is 1982, and a beleaguered Roman Empire finally collapses as barbarians capture the imperial capital of Paris. This being the longest last Roman Empire Professor Fan has so far found. Contrary to popular assumption, the survival of the Roman Empire did not mean continued scientific progress and increasing civilization. The Roman Empire, in our reality and this one, was never much of an innovator, preferring to absorb the ideas of others, and they never really thought necessary to develop beyond hot running water. So while in our reality by the 1980s people had personal computers, in B712 they still exist without electricity. However, it's certainly true that for many centuries the Roman Empire was a beacon of stability and order, while our reality was convulsed with seemingly unending war. An interesting and puzzling feature of the study of alternate reality history is that some people seem to crop up again and again. Often it is hugely influential people like Alexander the Great, Charlemagne and William Shakespeare, but oddly enough the individual that pops up most is the comedian and raconteur Bob Monkhouse someone who Professor Fan has found in over 300 different realities, compared to Roman statesman Julius Caesar's 192 appearances, world conqueror Genghis Khan's 213, and Hollywood superstar Charlie Chaplin's 272. Finally, I had planned a long discussion with Professor Fan about that so often imagined scenario, what if Germany had won World War II? So far, this is decidedly in the minority of realities that Professor Fan has found. But on the few occasions Germany did win, or at least managed a peace where the Nazis remained in power, their rule nearly always collapses by 1955 at the latest. There are only a handful of realities where the Nazis built an empire that lasted more than 30 years. Professor Fan has suggested this is because fascism isn't really a viable long-term political structure. And now back to the narrative. 
I checked and rechecked the asset register. I had the right spot, and it couldn't move, and it wasn't visible, so where was it? The device of certain end was a blend of mathematics, statistics, witchcraft, and Armageddon prophecy. As virtually every religion and system of belief has talked about a literal and genuine end of the world, not the metaphorical end of the world that has happened, the certain end worked out which of these scenarios was most likely and then would make it happen. While calculated using mathematics and statistics, it was powered by the mental energy of a million augurs, doomsayers and prophesizers, by the strength of their belief. Of course, would it actually work? The practice of using less practical forms of energy, like mental energy, has been checkered at best, with far more failures than successes. And you can't really test doomsday devices, when you turn it on, it's happening. The actual device is a mixture of computer, 3D printer, genetic engineering lab, and would create the physical manifestation of this Armageddon and presumably endow it with the necessary power to complete the task. If you needed a giant raven to swallow the universe, this machine would make it. If it was the four horsemen, each with their own destructive capabilities, this machine would do it. This is almost certainly as ludicrous as it all sounds. How can you create something bigger than the universe? But somebody must have thought there was a chance it could do it. And now it was missing. After checking the area again to make sure I hadn't just fallen behind the shelving unit, I rushed out to raise the alarm. Francois Laura took the news calmly while polishing his spectacles. Hector Cassan threw the glass of whiskey he had been drinking against the wall. And Marvin Penner quickly started drawing a layout of the basement and working out the logistics of such a heist. None of them really helped solve the matter at hand. I asked them what seemed to be the most pressing question. Does it work? All three spoke at once, saying different things but with one meaning. Almost certainly not. To work, the device would have to solve at least a dozen different scientific problems that was assumed would take generations to get through, and then the mystical and supernatural elements involved well, surely it couldn't work. When I asked him what we did next, Francois suggested a complete inventory of not only the basement, but essentially of everything and everyone currently in storage. Hector thought it best to destroy the basement and pretend that it never existed, whereas Marvin suggested a brand new security system that would undoubtedly foil similar attempts in the future. Basically, they didn't know what to do next. None of their suggestions would have helped get the device back or even work out who had it. I realised that these were the wrong people to ask. Don't get me wrong, they were experts at what they did, but as soon as the device had been stolen, it left their area of expertise. Truth be told, it was hardly in my area of expertise either, and I could quite happily wash my hands of the whole business. But I felt that had been going on a lot recently, and you know, I live in the universe, and someone had stolen a device that was described as being able to destroy that universe. I headed back to my carriage, my mind full of questions. I reached the door when I was grabbed from behind and pushed against the wall, and was face to face with one of the creatures who had been preying on the crew. Its long bony fingers held me tightly, and for a few seconds I was able to get a good look at a living specimen. The creatures had basically a human body, in fact, judging from the tattered remains of clothes, they had once been human. Their limbs seemed longer and thinner, but no less strong for it. The real difference was their face. Hard, ridged skin covered the face, obliterating any features that could identify the person they had once been. Eyes, ears and mouth were only barely visible. 
That was until the creature opened its mouth, revealing jagged and gnarled teeth. As I stood moments from death, I didn't cry out, because really, saving people, even myself, isn't my job. My job is to make a podcast, and really, this was a failure of the proper authorities. I pressed my body against the wall and waited for it to be over, and then, with a tremendously loud bang, it was. My ears rang from the gunshot, and I stood still, but shaking slightly. The creature lay crumpled in the corner of the carriage, a gunshot wound to the side of the head. I slowly turned to face the shooter. It was Annette Vasca, who I had last seen running from the creatures just a few days ago. I opened my mouth to speak, but managed only the first syllable of the word what when Vasca shot the creature twice more. What are you doing firing a gun in here? That was so loud. I was angry with Vasca, but she didn't even seem to notice. She reloaded her pistol and stuck it back in the holster. She swung the rifle down from her shoulder and opened the door to the next carriage. I heard her fire the rifle twice and I slowly followed her. Two more creatures lay dead, but next to them were the dead bodies of two of the crew. The creatures were dead from Vasca's rifle, the crew dead from the creature's attack. Vasca kept going. Vasca, you're making a terrible mess, I said, trailing after her. I realised I had just walked through the carriage, but I'd been so lost in my thoughts I had not even noticed the brutal axe going on around me. Still, Vasca shouldn't have been doing this. This was someone else's responsibility. I followed Vasca through five more carriages and two more dead creatures. Whenever I caught up with her, I implored her to stop, but she barely acknowledged my existence. We finally reached the engine, which for safety reasons was normally inaccessible but as the engine was being recalibrated, it was left wide open. Vasca held one of the engineers by the throat, her pistol pressed against his forehead. She demanded the engineer start the train and get us moving. He began rattling off reasons why he couldn't do that, ranging from she didn't have the authority to it will be bad for the engine. You won't shoot me, said the engineer. You need me to start the train. Vasca nodded and released the engineer. And then, then she shot me. We'll leave it there, on a cliffhanger of sorts. Until next time, fellow survivors, I'm Richard Oliver, and this has been a real tour of post-apocalyptic games. At the end of the line was written and recorded by Richard Oliver. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate on iTunes. Follow the show on Twitter at postapocpodcast. Anyone wanting to submit questions, ask for advice, or make urgent pleas for help, should tweet us or send an email to at the end of the line podcast at gmail.com. Today's advice is In space, no one can hear you scream. In post apocalyptic England, they can hear you, they just don't care. <laughs>